0: I think the closest parallel is what we're seeing, you know, from the police, both what's being protested against. Right. And one of the, one of the things, one of my kind of talking points as it's taken shape over the last three days has been, you know, the police chief in, in, in Los Angeles before the Watts riots this guy named William Parker used to go to the Mississippi Delta to recruit his cops, right. Because he wanted racist thugs, you know? Um, and then I, you know, talk about, one of the most searing scenes in Nixonland, in which I talk about after the Newark riots, 1967, were um, subdued. That's when police started shooting people in cold blood. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts.
1: hello welcome to war college i am your host matthew galt our guest today is rick perlstein perlstein is a historian and author best known for nixon land the rise of a president and the fracturing of america he's also written the forthcoming reagan land america's right turn sir thank you so much for joining us thanks matthew looking forward to seeing what we get up to Yes. So Nixon Land is a chronicle of President Richard Milhouse Nixon, but also his relationship to the American people and how Nixon changed the American people. And it's also really popular right now. Uh, I thought of you for the show when I saw you tweet out that the publisher can't keep it in print. What's what what? Why is it so popular right now? Why ever because would people of want to? The charms of its it?
0: author, obviously. Um, well, uh, it's it's uh, about generally speaking, the canvas involves, you know, the um, various sorts of social uprisings of the 1960s. It starts with the Watts riots in 1965, you know, which happened, you know, eight days after Lyndon Johnson supposedly ended racism by, you know, like signing the Voting Rights Act. And uh, it's most, you know, I think galvanizing sections are about riots in 1966, 1967, 1968. And also the kind of Underlying structure of the book is how uh, Richard Nixon both kind of exploited and uh, spurred a kind of social division for political ends, his own political success, and uh, the 1968 election is, for some reason, what everyone is thinking of. It's it's, it's been interesting for me, Matthew. This is um, this is I think my like eighth or ninth interview, whether it's podcasts or newspapers, in the last three days, and you know, not a single one has said, well, tell me about the parallels between now and the WTO riots in Seattle in 1969 or the white night riots, uh, in which, you know, they're running battles between the police and gays and lesbians in in San Francisco in 1979 or the Rodney King riots in 1992 that, you know, George HW Bush tried unsuccessfully to politicize or, you know, um, any of those things, you know, the Tulsa race riots or whatever. 1968 is what people think about. And I think it's because, I don't know, I'm I'm really thinking about this in kind of a meta sense. I think that um, uh, in sort of the, 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 on on the kind of ungenerous side of the ledger, um, people tend to kind of remember American history in terms of cliches and the cliche is 1968 was this, you know, second civil war year of kind of profound division, which It's problematic in that my interpretation of American history is that, you know, there's just always, it always just kind of pulses and courses with profound divisions. The other is people really think in terms of presidential elections, right? And, you know, 1968 was a transformative political election, presidential election, and one in which Richard Nixon kind of made urban disorders a big part of his appeal to the public. So people are reading my book, which is, which is great. Uh, people are thinking about history, which is great. But then the other reflection I have after these nine interviews is, well, it's great that people are using history to think about the present, but we don't even really know what's happening yet out there. Right. it's like, where's the, who, what, where, why, when about, you know, exactly. It's such a diverse movement. Uh, you know, I was trying to explain to an Italian Marxist the other night, uh, the role of this kind of uh, 10 year long continuous building of uh, a political argument, a political tradition around response to police brutality since uh, the shooting of Oscar Grant uh, by the, sh- by the California Southern Cal- Northern California transit police uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, and how, you know, as the continuation of kind of almost an explicit movement um, that's very different from these uh, kind of spontaneous kind of burning down of neighborhoods in 1965, 1966, 1967. And, you know, how inconceivable it would have been that uh, a multicultural, uh, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, although mostly young, which is an interesting thing too, uh, different from the sixties group of uh, angry people would gather not in neighborhoods where they live, but kind of in these central downtown areas and, you know, not just, you know, kind of attack the store next door, but partially uh, attacking things like, you know, the headquarters of multinational brands, you know, Nike stores and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, 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 we that's why people are reading Nixon land. Right. Right. Uh, and is that a good thing or a bad thing? I've I've actually become ambivalent about that. <laughs> so there you are. Do you think that?
1: I think there's something about the 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 way there's this generational thinking in America. Like we have trouble kind of reaching back uh, further than uh, the previous two generations, and so that is, yeah, like. I and I would think, for, I think I would be hard pressed, except for like in leftist circles, for anyone to really remember the WTO
0: riots, um, which I do think are an important. Which is a question. I mean, there's a politics of historical memory too, right? right. Why do we remember some events? And everyone remembers, you know, uh, well, obviously everyone remembers nine eleven. You know, three thousand people died, um, but you know that was a very big deal. You know, it was really the first urban rioting of any size uh, since 1992. And it was very big on the left. I mean, you can kind of draw a direct line between the WTO and the anti-Iraq movement, which, you know, obviously eventually became uh, part of the Democratic Party and part of Barack Obama's appeal to the electorate in 2008, and to um, uh, the Ralph Nader campaign, and then that's before that 2000 and then to um to the bernie sanders campaign right can you can
1: you give us a little background on it because i feel like i feel like some of the audience is just not going to know what we're talking about
0: yeah that's true how how old how old are you if i if i may ask i am 36
1: i actually had i actually had some friends that were there
0: yeah yeah Uh, i'm 51 i was born in 1969 I okay. once had an editor say we we're most interested in the periods right before we were born. When we yes. kind of shaped our parents, right? Absolutely. So um, the 1990s, generally speaking, was kind of like the high tide of the Democratic Party's kind of romance with um, market thinking, generally neoliberalism, if you prefer. And, you know, one of the big policy objectives of the Clinton administration <laughs> Was you know NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which really, in a lot of ways, was uh, kind of a giveaway to multinational corporations. You know, opened up all these uh, factories on the border where they could kind of import goods into the United States. It was supposed to be great for American jobs. It turned out to be terrible for American jobs. It really helped you know kind of decimate, decimate the Mexican middle class and the rural peasantry. So there was very much this kind of on the left critique around. Uh, what was kind of becoming to be known as globalization Uh, and the world trade organization basically being kind of the traffic cop of globalization and kind of subsumed under the um, phrase free trade was really a kind of managed trade in which kind of nations and corporations kind of um, coordinated and cartelized various kinds of um, production. Right. That um, made it a lot easier to move uh, jobs overseas to chase the cheapest labor. You know, first it was, you know, Taiwan and then China and then Vietnam. And um, so there was really this um, very strong thread of um, activism around this. So when the World Trade Organization announced that they were going to have their annual, biannual, I don't even know, quadrennial, whatever, their big meeting in Seattle, which really was a part of this kind of insurgent left, the headquarters of it, um, there was organizing that was quite strikingly kind of across a lot of different identity lines. It was both, you know, the the, 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 the phrase at the time was teamsters and turtles because kind of environmentalists dressed up like sea turtles who were threatened right. by, you know, kind of globalization, uh, but with teamsters and union members. And it was very militant. They tried to make it impossible for the The ministers of the various nations, the trade negotiators should actually get to the place where they need to go to uh, protest. And there were lots of broken windows. And that of course became a very big uh, news story. Um, and uh, so basically it was a riot, right? Around mm-hmm. uh, questions of global capitalism. And, and, and are, the reason I think of it now is just because, you know, it really was, just like kind of like Black Lives Matter and the police abuse movement is to what we've seen in the last you know nine days as to kind of the anti-globalization movement, aspects of the union movement that were fighting against, free trade, were to the WTO protests. It was the culmination of a certain kind of left-wing discourse. I'm not going to say organizing because then you get into that weird outside agitator thing, but this is connected to a movement in a way that, you know, the rioting in the 1960s wasn't.
1: Well, I think that when we, we, we have to be careful about the way we talk about riots. Um, Cause I almost think of them more akin to like a natural disaster is the wrong analogy, but they, it is a buildup and then a bursting of energy and they are, are tend to be loosely or completely disorganized um, because organized violence doesn't look like what we're seeing. Right, it's different it's much different. Um, so what are there any parallels that you see to like the long hot summer of nineteen sixty-seven, the stuff in sixty eight, or do you think that uh, all of this is kind of did you read that piece by the do you know who Dave Weigel is, Washington Post reporter? He had a great he might have even quoted me in one of in his piece about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He had, um, he puts out a column called the trailer, uh, and one of his most recent trailers, he was like, Hey, this is not like 1968 and here's why. Uh, and I think he did quote you. Um, but I kind of, but you know, you say like you've been on all these podcasts and everyone's reaching out and like, is there anything here? Um, or do you think that we're just like, it just that's our cultural memories. That's the last time we remember, uh, you know, protests like this that felt that violent.
0: I think the closest parallel is what we're seeing, you know, from the police, both what's being protested against. Right. And one of the, one of the things, one of my kind of talking points as it's taken shape over the last three days has been, you know, the police chief in, in, in Los Angeles before the Watts riots, this guy named William Parker used to go to the Mississippi Delta to recruit his cops, right. Because he wanted racist thugs, you know, um, and then I, you know, talk about one of the most searing scenes in Nixonland, in which I talk about after the Newark riots, nineteen sixty seven, were um, subdued. That's when police started shooting people in cold blood.
1: Yeah, no, like get into because I, I, I'd actually not heard of that at all until I'd read your book. Um, surprisingly, can you tell us about what happened in New York, nineteen sixty seven?
0: Yeah, I want to uh, give credit to. Um, a journalist called Ron Parambo, who is gone now, but he um, risked his life uh, to publish a 1971 book called uh, No Cause for Indictment that I was able to bring back into print several years ago from a left-wing publisher. And basically what he documented extremely, extremely, uh, with extreme detail and care was that the state police and the National Guard frequently with a death toll, you know, in, of this description above 12, um, would would shoot into crowds, would uh, shoot people who were bystanders, uh, basically uh, that there was a police riot in Newark following the riot of, you know, people burning stuff down. And um, the reason the book is called No Cause for Indictment was that the uh, state authorities' report on this um, said that there was no cause to indict any of the police. right? Um, and, of course, the reason this was, and this gets to your question about parallels and non-parallels, I think the reason that doesn't live in our memory of these events is that the media then was much poorer when it came to these kinds of events, I've been actually extremely impressed by the subtlety and nuance and contextualization and compassion about the lot of journalism around this stuff. Not all of it, of course, but in 1967, one of the stories I tell in Nixon land, uh, was, uh, that, um, there was a beloved, one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the martyrs was, uh, this kind of beloved community figure named uncle daddy Harris, you know, and, uh, CBS news filmed his funeral. And according to sources, I I don't remember where I got this exactly. Maybe it was from Prambo. It was just this galvanizing footage of this community outpouring of grief. Um, and that CBS news refused to, um, show the footage because they didn't want to be seen as sympathetic to riders. And, you know, in previous interviews, I've contrasted that to, the way the shooting of the barbecue stand operator in Louisville under very similar circumstances, shooting into a crowd. Um, everyone knows about that, you know? Um, and, uh, the idea that this would be suppressed, uh, is not conceivable. And then of course, yesterday, uh, MSNBC devoted, you know, two and a half hours to the funeral of George Floyd, you know? Um, And, you know, I I, I document in in Nixon land just cavalier contempt by the media for uh, this stuff. And um, the absolute conviction among the public, partly because of the media, but partly because people were trusting institutions a lot more then and uh, the politics of law and order such that in a place, a situation like the Chicago uh, Democratic Convention riots, in which, you know, white protesters were uh, beaten mercilessly by, uh, by the cops without any violent confrontation without any violent um, you know um they weren't responding to anything from the, the the protesters they were sitting down in the street uh people overwhelmingly sided with the cops and just assumed as a matter of course that these kids must have been attacking the police uh blaming the media for not showing uh that the 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 police were obviously acting in self-defense when this was objectively not the case And now we have this poll result from the morning consult uh, that shows fifty percent, from a a ratio of fifty-five to thirty-four percent, people are more likely to believe that the public is under threat from the police than the police are under threat from the public. So that's you know that's very very uh, very very different. Um, The the I'd say the biggest kind of structural difference is what we're seeing now in, in response to. George Floyd's death and, of course, you know, this building of tension over George Floyd's death is an absolute continuum. You can find gradations every point along the scale from, you know, silent vigils in which people lie in their back for seven minutes and 45 seconds or chant, you know, I can't breathe, as we saw at the Denver Capitol, to, you know, um, people stealing cars because the police are occupied, right? Um, so in every gradation of kind of planned protest to spontaneous protest, peaceful protest to violent protest, it is a complete, it's all connected somehow, right? It's all connected to this event, to this rage, maybe not, you know, kind of people taking advantage of stuff to just steal things. Although, you know, obviously there's an economic factor that there's so much privation right. and inequality going on right now, especially because of COVID. So, I mean, you could say that, that is a political response in a certain sense, too. Whereas, sure, in 1965 and 1966 there were civil rights marches, but uh, actually uh, the mainstream civil rights movement said basically these riots have you know kind of nothing to do with us. I mean Martin Luther King said these riots are you know rioting is the language of the unheard. Yeah. Right. So he he had a he had a a, a political you know kind of uh, analysis of the riots, but. Um, it was very easy for him to say, uh, "I reject this as a strategy." Um, whereas now, um, what do you what do you point to as what's happening, right? Uh, and that's kind of where I've become frustrated with kind of uh, this e- instinct to just immediately think of, "Well, how is this like 1968?" And then, of course, you get into the differences between Richard and Richard Nixon and Donald Trump. Uh, That's one more point I'm going to make, actually, which is like, it's so fascinating. Why are we talking about 1968? You, you, You made a really good point. That's what people remember. It's a presidential election. Well, it's also one of these examples in which we're talking about exactly what Donald Trump wants us to talk about. He's the guy who, you know, used 1968, 1969 slogans, right? So once again, you know, we're kind of following this guy's you know, following this guy's whims. He wants you to
1: remember that there was a weak Democrat in office. So, so, uh, supposedly, and that Nixon restored law and order. I'm the law and order guy like Nixon
0: was right. Right. And then he tried again in 1970 and, you know, ran a law and order campaign for democratic congressional candidates. And people were like, what are you talking about? You know, you haven't restored law and order. And in fact, you seem to be intentionally, uh, exacerbating divisions within the society. So, you know, objectively he, Trump looks like, you know, as so often is the case, uh, another Republican on steroids are turned up to 11, but that Republican is Richard Nixon in, you know, 1970 in which basically, so to speak, he lost.
1: Right. I think, and I think that's a really important thing that we, that I, I keep seeing get left out of this conversation is how different the political situations really are. um, Trump, the the law and order guy is the incumbent. You know, he's not trying to win an election. Uh, crime is way, way, way like it's not even it's not even the
0: same, right? At all the way. I haven't even talked about that. Happen. That's a really good thing to be reminded of. I mean, we're talking about you know uh, murder rates, you know, doubling during the fifties and sixties, right? And there
1: were there were riots of various kinds for several years leading up to that election, right? Like basically every summer, every year, and it came out
0: of nowhere, right? It was yeah. like this is the thanks we get from, you know, doing all these wonderful things for African-Americans. That was the discourse then. Yep. Right. And it took, it was, it was, it was a hard thing for a Democrat to do as someone like Hubert Humphrey or Robert F. Kennedy, you know, tried to do to call people to empathy. And one of the things we're dealing with too, is this post 2001 militarization of police stuff, which I'm sure you have some you know fascinating things to say about. Uh, yeah. And I think that that, stuff being on full display and being visited on obvious innocence is something that's um, I think some scales are falling off eyes uh, in middle America. Right. And that's why you're seeing, you you know, as we speak, you know, on Friday, June 5th or 4th, June, June 5th, the looting is pretty much done for what we're looking at now is, you know, vigil like, um, uh, um, dignified protests in cities and even small towns all across America. You know, um, Naperville, Illinois, where I live, I don't live in Naperville. I live in the city, but you know, Uh, In DuPage County, which you know, if if you're if you're from Detroit, it's Bloomfield Hills. If you're, you know, from New York, it's Great Neck. If you're from Los Angeles, it's you know Pasadena. You know, basically this kind of bucolic suburban type situation. That was the kind of place that Nixon was appealing to in 1968 and succeeded in winning. This is a place where there actually are Black Lives Matter protests going on you know, in, in, in 2020. And it's the kind of place that, that Richard Nixon was appealing to in 2018, these kind of suburban swing districts that the Democrats overwhelmingly won. Uh, And, you know, the big picture political analysis of this is people don't want to support the person they see as delivering uh, um, disturbance to society, not healing disturbance to society.
1: Right. Are you better off than you were four years ago?
0: Right. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, um, you know, is this a change election or is this a, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, something, I th- something, another thing I've been thinking about a lot,
1: um, is where you end Nixon land, uh, that, that Bob Dole quote that he gave at his funeral, I think is, is very telling. Yeah. Um, what is it like? I've got it right here. The second half of the 20th century will be known as the age of Nixon. um, are we
0: still living in that? Well, that was very a very interesting phenomenon, and and speaks to kind of how liberals and Democrats, you know, kind of you published this in two thousand eight. Constitutive thought flaw, long term flaw of their thinking was that they, they they don't really see kind of reaction as kind of like this this this, this fundamental constitutive part of the American experience, kind of stitch into the fabric of society. So every time a a Democrat or a liberal wins, whether it's nineteen sixty or two thousand and eight they say, oh, we finally vanquished this monster for good. They think so, they've got their next FDR, right? They think they're going to get yeah, the next right. like, Those, 20 the F- years. FDR of, yeah. on, the, uh, on the cover of uh, Newsweek and the the liberal magazine, the Washington Monthly, there was Barack Obama you mm-hmm. know, as FDR, right? And so when people reviewed Nixon land, I got a lot of, wow, this is a great book, but what the hell is he talking about? You know, we still live in Nixon land. And then uh, a lot more of that in November of 2008, of people saying, you know, I mean, you could Google it, you know, Nixon land and Obama, Nixon land is over, Obama ended Nixon land. I heard the same thing in, you know, 1992 from in grad- when I was in graduate school and one of my a professor I was working for said, oh, my God, it's just like I remember it's just like Kennedy, you know. Um, and then, you know, one of the guys who wrote that in one of his reviews, um, uh, an aide to Mayor Bloomberg, as it happens, uh, apologized to me. Right. He said, oh, yeah, you were right. Right. And apparently I learned from my podcast with David Pluff that Nixonland was being read in the White House as kind of like a manual for, you know, the kind of uh, revanchist, you know, kind of uh, take no prisoners politics of the Republicans, which was, you know, of course, at the same time, flattering and disappointing because, I mean, do they really not know, you know, what happened in the 1850s? Do they really not? Does Barack Obama really not know what was happening when he was living in Chicago in the 1980s when it was council wars? And, when, when, you know, Harold Washington became the first African-American mayor of Chicago, the, the, the white majority in the city council basically tried to shut down his government. You know? Uh, this is us, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is, like you said, this is the kind of the story, this has been part of the story of the country for the entire time the country's been around, right? The, the founding fathers uh, wrote those documents, uh, built the country, and then immediately started fighting
0: each other a book that's coming out the same day as mine uh, on August 18th uh that's coming out uh that I blurb and I think it's probably the most exciting history book I've read in many years uh called break it up and it's called like this sort of secession division and the history of like the United States of America and he goes back to before the founding uh how hard it was to basically get all these various colonies to think about themselves as a a, a united Uh, phenomenon at all and how like secessionist movements immediately began and there were literally dozens of them like in every decade of american history uh it's just astonishing and you know my big sort of project historically really takes off from that insight which is that people kind of on some level had that they know there's this kind of unconscious you know knowledge that you know america is on you know like basically they say like you know, civilization is four meals away from anarchy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we're kind of four, we're four urban uprisings away from, you know, um, uh, secession, disunity, civil war, right? Um, and we, we we just so furiously, furiously, frenetically, trying to convince ourselves that's not the case. You know, um, Union soldiers and Confederate soldiers mar- marching down the street in the 4th of July in New York in the 1870s, You know. Uh, um, you know, a long national nightmare is over. Gerald Ford's uh, speech and his, you know, kind of after taking the Oval Office, you know, there is no red America, there is no blue America. That this frenzy to try and believe that we're united in peace with itself is actually a huge variable in the political culture of America itself. And Do you think that uh, Donald Trump makes that harder, and that's why one of the reasons he's so traumatic for our political culture? Do you think
1: there's any way to resolve that, or is that just a feature of uh, the experiment?
0: I think that uh, a big theme of my last book, The Invisible Bridge, um, is a psychological one, which is that the way you um, transcend trauma is to confront trauma and be honest about trauma and work through trauma, whether it's a family or an individual or a nation. I mean, we're thinking of, you know, what Germany did in the generations after World War II, what South Africa did with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And my argument in this book, Land, was, I mean, Invisible Bridge, was that, you know, as the Vietnam War came to a close and American defeat, and as Watergate came to the fore, and as Americans' economic dominance began to be questioned with the Arab oil boycott, that that actually was happening. Right. You had things like the, the church committee looking into uh, the CIA and, and the, the secret government. You know, you had uh, people questioning um, uh, the president's ability to make war. Uh, you had people working through all sorts of American dramas. Uh, and that the, the kind of cultural role of Ronald Reagan, who was coming to prominence nationally uh, through the 1976 presidential election, shall we say the bicentennial year, which I write about people you would think was a good idea to celebrate because America had nothing to celebrate, but people celebrated and ended up loving what Ronald Reagan's role in the political culture was to kind of absolve people of that obligation, right. To kind of wave it all away. So America's God's chosen nation with a city on a hill and why are people being so negative? Right. And, um, so America will not be able to kind of deal with, you know, the racial ordeal, right. Until we acknowledge that the only reason we have a nation is because we, 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 we ignored the racial division between the North and South. You know, we papered over this fundamental cleavage that was repressed and repressed and compromised and compromised until the repressed returned in the form of almost a million corpses of Americans killing each other. And it'll just,
1: yeah, you can't push that stuff
0: down, right? It has to be resolved or else it'll keep coming back Well, this out. is the Freudian thing, right? It's, it's a hydraulic thing. Yeah, you know, it's like when you push it down, it comes out in even uglier fashion. And, you know, it's like in Nixon, in, in my first book, Before the Storm, the way this manifests itself is that the period before Kennedy's assassination and Goldwater and basically the 60s, that's the storm, it's called, why it's called Before the Storm, was a period in which this, this frenzied uh, top of your voice declamation that America had solved all its problems and was united was at its high tide, you know, in that 1961, 1962, 1963 period. Mm-hmm. And that the reason the sixties were so ugly and cacophonous was in part because that was the return of what we had repressed, that all those tensions were obviously there, racial tensions, tensions about America's role in the world, uh, cold war tensions, uh, and that suddenly Americans were, um, you know, killing each other again over them.
1: Do you see yourself as like a historian or a chronicler of 20th century American conservatism?
0: Well, I always say that, um, you know, my books aren't about, about presidents. They're about, and you, you actually, I, I really was appreciated in, uh, the way you actually introduced me as a person about how it's the Nixon month about how the American people change, right? That's the subject, Right. That's, I mean that's to me that's what made the book so good. Uh, yeah. What made so it like such a Nixon unique? Land, yeah, right. In the preface, I say like the, the star of Nixon Land is the voter who you know voted for Lyndon Johnson because it seemed the only obvious same thing to do. When voted for Richard Nixon in nineteen seventy two, for exactly the same reason. So that's my big subject, right? And 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 presidents and presidential campaigns are kind of whetstones in which kind of like that that kind of, that blade is kind of sharpened, you know, it's like, that's how the uh, you can see what Americans kind of longings are by the leaders they're attracted to. Uh, that, that, that basically, um, mm-hmm. this some um, political scientist and biographer named, um, shoot, what is his name? His, his McGregor, James McGregor Burns, uh, that he wrote this book called leadership. And one of the things he talks about is that, um, Leaders and their followers have this kind of symbiotic psychological relationship, where leaders, the followers or the constituency of a uh, of a leader, kind of serves a psychological, deep seated psychological need in the leader. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like even so, metaphorically, it's Barack Obama's kind of need to have you know this kind of unified identity. You know, after living this life, you know, and the storm tossed sea, yeah, searching for his father.
1: Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. i never thought of it that way, but yes.
0: Richard Nixon is the Orthogonian, right? And he just kind of, he, he just kind of repeats that wound over and over again and, and, and wins the loyalty of people who identify with his struggle to be kind of taken seriously by the cool kids. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm really fascinated by that, you know, and that's, and so, uh, conservatism You know, that's another kind of layer of abstraction. You know, I'm really fascinated with, um, you know, who's on the inside and who's on the outside. You know, um, how societies kind of solve the problem of distributing resources and power uh, and, you know, the history of um, the struggle for freedom and uh, the struggle for stability, which are, are obviously at loggerheads with each other. That's the the left versus right struggle, which is you know pretty fundamental to any political community. All
1: right. Well, let me ask, let me ask this question then, and I may be about to show my ass about not knowing uh, everything you've written, um, but we'll find out. Where's your Jimmy Carter book? Then? Well, that's
0: it. That's Reagan it. Land is a Jimmy Carter book. It goes from 1976 okay. to 1980.
1: Well, well, there
0: we go. Let's see. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, the, the, the Jimmy Carter 1976 campaign, unfortunately, it's kind of the primary campaign is in Invisible Bridge and the general election campaign is, is in is in Reagan land. You know, I mean, maybe it's a screenplay where I write about the, the Carter campaign because that was just such a fascinating thing. And so much was a part of um, a man kind of responding to the longing of the public for honesty you know, and a big part of um, the political crisis that Jimmy Carter faced was he basically had these very strong political instincts towards things like austerity and sacrifice. And that just wasn't what he talked about when he was running for car, uh, president in 1976. You know, when he's kind of like, you know, going to the public on TV and saying, you know, you need to make do with less. He's like, was that what we voted for? I don't remember. I thought we voted for the guy who was like, you know, really honest and was a peanut farmer and promised not to lie to us. You know?
1: Yeah. Then he's, then he's talking about American malaise, which he didn't actually say, if I recall correctly, um, and getting attacked by swamp rabbits.
0: Um, right, no, no one's all smaller all the time. Yeah, So that's exactly. a big part of the book. And, you know, the reason Reagan uh, was successful in 1980, you know, in the abstract was, again, the same Invisible ridge, Bridge reason that he was able to kind of answer Jimmy Carter with bullshit and say, uh, no, we don't need to sacrifice America. Um, it literally, and if you look at his, you know, 1980 uh, acceptance speech, he says some, some people say we have to make do with less. No, Americans never have to, you know, make do with less. Our, our opportunities are boundless. This is America, bitches, you know. Uh, to the moon, you know, to Mars, you know, and uh, that sounded pretty darn good. How important
1: is the personality of the
0: president in shaping the American people? I I think it's really, really important. Uh, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, this kind of epiphenomenon of the Donald Trump era, right? Um, I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, here's this, here's this cop, right. Who, who, whose name is Chauvin. He, he looks like, you know, like, you know, the bully and back to the future. Right. And he's just like, you know, like, looks like, you know, the, the guy who steals your lunch money. Right. And here's this guy, uh, this kind of modest, sweet, gentle giant. you know, uh, who, you know, has, you know, like a checkered past, right. From poverty and privation. And then the striking thing is they might have known each other, you know, working Mm -hmm. at the same bar. So we don't really know that, you know, but like it certainly lets us kind of insert a narrative. They were in the same world. Yeah, well, it lets you insert a narrative in which this white bully is murdering this innocent black person um, um, because he can on camera, knowing he's on camera, posing for the camera, uh, having his hand in his pocket. I've even heard very uh, unpleasant reflections that maybe he's even touching himself, you know, Um, and, um, you know, thinking that he can get away with it. Well, that really does seem like at least a symbolic concatenation of the era of Donald Trump, right, the personality of Donald Trump. So if you look at these kind of epiphenomenon of, you know, high schools with minority basketball teams playing white basketball teams and getting, you know, Donald Trump slogans chanted at them. Right. You know, that that kind of casualization of, of cruelty, you know, people proudly going around, you know, not wearing masks. I mean, obviously that's directly, you know, modeling the president's behavior, but it's also a kind of more broadly uh, a Donald Trump story in the world, you know, uh, that, that we're not interconnected. And that the whole point of, life is to um to dominate, right? And 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 not, you know, sacrifice to any collectivity. Right. Um and then you have, you know, like on the other side of the ledger, this guy, Franklin Roosevelt, of whom it was said, you know, he didn't have a first class intellect, but he had a first class temperament. This guy who kind of grew up rich, uh, had uh profound um privation in his life because of his polio, and kind of developed this empathy in which he almost seemed to um, and I wrote about this in an essay I wrote about a Roosevelt biography, I almost seemed to kind of in his, in his, in his private cogitation say, you know, everyone should have the security I had growing up. Right. Uh, And was able to kind of bridge that gap between um, what it means to have kind of a secure and prosperous and happy and fulfilled life uh, and what it feels like to be denied that. Uh, And that was kind of embodied in his personality you know, he was a very democratic person, right? And uh, I write about that too. You know, he, he talked about in his famous, in, 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 in Reaganland, I write about that. He talked about his, um, uh, I talked about his famous, you know, we don't have anything to fear, but fear itself speech uh, in which he, he basically said, um, uh, none of this is any of your fault. You know, this, this was done to you. Whereas I contrast that to Jimmy, uh, a statement Jimmy Carter made when he visited California during the 1979 oil crisis, when she said, this is all your fault. You did this. Right? You've been too selfish.
1: Yeah, not, not something Californians want to hear from someone from Georgia.
0: Uh, well, it was actually president. kind of fun because you know, like everyone was blaming it on California. Because it started in California in May, And yeah, so like yeah. there was this senator from Illinois saying, "Well, of course they're like this car obsessed culture and they're really selfish." And then like the next year it happened all over the country. Yeah. And so that was yeah. kind of a nice comeuppance for for the Golden State.
1: Um, I want to switch tracks here just a little bit uh, and talk a little bit more about uh, uh, riots and protests in general. Um, so we're all sitting. We're all sitting in our houses. Some of us are out on the streets. Uh, But everyone's watching all this stuff all the time right now. We're all, yeah, we're all taking it in. Um, And I'm wondering, something that struck me as I was, as I was reading this is like your, like Nixon land has all these great, like uh, personal moments from these areas of protest. And I'm wondering like, what is the process of writing about the history of something like this? Because it is so chaotic. Um, And, with these, it's going to be a You're little bit different. You're
0: a writer different. asking a question about writing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like how do you, and in, in history, like how do you write a history uh, or of a movement that is so chaotic and has so many different discrete stories built within it, right? Like how do you look at
0: something? Yeah, you make choices, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, I always say writing is mind control. You know, it's like you tell people what to think about, you know, from second millisecond to millisecond you know, you kind of control their consciousness from the amount of time they're kind of trading their eyes and the words that used to only exist in your head, you know, and now are out there in the world, right? So in a really kind of chaotic situation, um, you know, you basically find storylines, you know, beginning, middle and end conflict, you know, what is happening here, you know, because any, any event, you know, there's a universe in the greatest sand, you know, you can write 10,000 words on any event, 10,000 pages on any event, but, um, you know, like um, you know sometimes you know uh, a storyteller has the camera up in 20,000 feet sometimes they have it in you know two millimeters, right, and you tack between those things. Um, and you start with how people other people have told the story, because even you know like any almost any and almost any um, trace of the past comes through it so through some kind of storytelling mediation, even if it's only, you know, a reporter deciding to what to report. Right. Um, and if you're looking at kind of one of the things you'd start with the secondary sources, how has this story been told? I mean, most, most grandiose, grandiosely, you know, the 1960s was previously told as this inspiring story of social protest. Right. Yeah. That I mean, that's the, was that's laid the, low by, you know, whatever, you know, that's the version I was weaned on growing up. Yeah, it's like I, a call the, the I call 80s. it the, I call it the, um, minivan commercial version of the histories, you know, like we protest in the streets, we burned our bras and now we have four kids and, you know, work for the man, you know, mm-hmm. the, the big chill. Right. Right. Um, well, you know, in the, my mother Jones piece, I talk about how, you know, when I asked my parents to tell me there's a story about the sixties, you know, hoping, you know, they went to some protest or something. Uh, it was, well, when there was a riot in Milwaukee and we couldn't go downtown, we had a pool party at our house for all our friends who also couldn't go downtown to work at their businesses that they owned, you know? um, Yeah, I'm not sure, you know, uh, if that helps in your answer. Um, but, you know, just, you know, secondary sources are really, you know, in the case of the Newark riot, you know, um, that's basically a paraphrase of this guy Perombo's book. You know, that's why, you know, history is, Fundamentally, a collective enterprise in which you kind of you show your sources and you acknowledge your sources, but you're basically kind of working with materials and stories that you know you inherit.
1: How do you think this process is going to change, or has been changed already by social media? Because now you have all these firsthand accounts captured on video, uh, thousands of them. Then how do you how do you take that and write uh, Trumpland? You know,
0: yeah, yeah. That's really an interesting question, and uh, people are really saying interesting things about it. If you go to like an American Historical Association conference, there'll be really interesting people who are doing you know kind of data collection. You know, a guy, a guy who was writing the history of the of MySpace, and you know, there's there's lots of there's actually lots of um, data visualization stuff going on, mm-hmm. right? So like you know like um, you know those word clouds, right? So you know, in, in a way, once you have big data it doesn't necessarily make a story harder to tell. You can kind of see the shape of the story, right? A coral reef is made of, you know, like lots of different, you know, kind of individual pieces of coral, but you still see the reef, right? So it's not like necessarily that kind of reality kind of becomes more chaotic. And it's not necessarily the case that powerful people still don't have the power to shape narratives. I mean, um, you know, people talked about, oh, now that everyone's going to be like a publisher, you know, people are not going to be able to dominate, you know, powerful people are not going to be able to dominate how people interpret reality in the same way. Well, the Bush administration had no problem, you know, uh, launching a classic top-down conspiracy theory about Saddam's weapons of mass destruction, laundering it through, you know, the New York Times and, and, and meet the press, right? Uh, and uh, in the same way, Donald Trump is creating a storyline that's structuring its own resistance uh, that's no less evident and clear from the fact that it's, you know, made up of a billion different representations instead of a million, right? Um, But um, um, it's, uh, you know, there's the Internet Archive, which is creating you know you know kind of cataloging everything um you know if i were if i were like if i my dream would have been to tell tell write my books since 1968 all based on 90% based on uh tv footage instead of newspapers because that's how people experience reality unfortunately the news footage is all at the television news archive in vanderbilt you know right and yeah because that's how expe- people, you know, experience it. Um, but, you know, like I have a file, you know, now that Corona has passed us by, it's, it's kind of like I'm not using it much. I have a, every email I get from like a activist organization or a newspaper that talks about Corona, it goes in my file. And I can imagine kind of like, you know, donating that file, you know, to an archive. You know, this is what a person like uh, a liberal, politically active, literate, educated person how they would have, you know, kind of had the Corona crisis mediated for them, you know, in 2020. Through the media they consume specifically. I mean, my, my kind of like all my attempt is always to kind of reproduce what kind of like a marginal, you know, kind of like relatively aware, if not, not obsessed person would kind of mm -hmm. consume during the period in which I'm writing about these, did you take a did you take a trip to Vanderbilt and like sit and watch archived? I once actually made a over uh, overnight trip there. Actually, it might have been a trip where I like went in the morning during the day because I was just like so obsessed with seeing this one um, very famous news program, which was the one in which Ted Kennedy uh, was interviewed by Roger Mudd right before he announced his campaign, which kind of tanked his campaign because he did so poorly. Uh, and I'm really glad I did.
1: <laughs> what did uh? Just out of curiosity, why,
0: how did he tank it? What was the... Well, actually, most famously, with, it's, people remember things in a certain way. It's going to take us full circle in discussion as we kind of draw to a close. People remember him taking his campaign by being asked why he was running for president and not being able to come up with a answer that it wasn't full of stutters and ums, right? But right. I think it had as much to do in that same um, interview with uh, the kind of imagined reconstruction of the Chappaquiddick accident, create crisis, murder, whatever you want to call it. And you're, we're talking about how narrative works, right? And how kind of, we're always kind of have stories in our head, even as we tell other stories, watching that, it was very clear to me that the way um, that was visually represented, they had a camera in a car that was just like um, the one that Kennedy was driving, look like a horror movies, killer eye view uh, from a slasher film, which were just becoming popular then. right? So, you know, like Carl Rove says, you know, TV is, you know, politics is TV with the sound off. You know, it's like, I think that was the far more kind of uh, galvanizing like, reminder that maybe this guy wasn't the guy you want, you know, with his finger on the button, that he wouldn't quite be as cool in a crisis as you would want him to be.
1: Uh, okay. Tell me
0: about Reagan land. It's coming out in August coming out in august it it starts with um um the first paragraph of the book is about how it's just after the 1976 election and ronald reagan is furiously insisting that it's not his fault that gerald ford lost because he didn't do much campaigning for him Mm -hmm. and people said now that you know he's practically responsible for gerald ford losing and he's really old his political career is over and so that's one storyline is, you know, basically him kind of putting together the po- political team and coalition to become president against this backdrop of the Carter presidency. And then also these social movements, uh, of kind of the religious right taking shape. And then also a related movement of, um, corporate America, uh, really beginning to organize in, uh, uh a serious way against, um, the liberal state and liberal regulation forming that part of the coalition and coming up with absolutely brilliant propaganda you know, doing things like uh, convincing the majority of Americans that uh, the way to save the economy is to um, lower taxes on capital gains um, you're his, you're
1: a historian I know that you've written about how um, that you wrote that New York Times piece about how like Trump like you study conservatism but Trump you know took you by surprise. Um, what do you see happening? Do you see how do you see things playing
0: out, right? In the next, like, I don't do the predictions, but I definitely can say what to look for, right? Yeah, and, yeah, You know, the biggest thing that separates kind of Trumpism from Reaganism, or you know, basically conservatism since Goldwater, uh, is that there is always this sense that uh, there is enormous political capital to be gained by mining the um, lizard brain fears of the public uh this is you know basically well understood you know that's basically the story of nixonland but there also always was this tempering understanding that this is a dangerous game and that we have to kind of put up a firewall and you know kind of uh say one thing in public that we would say one thing in private that we would never say in public and that's where you know this 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 this, this metaphor of the dog whistle comes in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right and uh the thing that changes trumpism the Trumpism transformed is the dog whistle becomes the train whistle. Donald Trump has kind of taught Republicans that they don't actually have to erect that for firewall; that they can tear it down. And what seems to be possibly happening, although it's early days, is that we're getting we're seeing a little bit of a buyer's remorse from certain portions of the Republican coalition. You know, this is this is you know I'm sure that's something you've been doing a lot of thinking and reading about, you know, what's general Mattis up to, what's the joint chiefs of staff up to, what's Lisa Murkowski up to, you know, uh, you know, is, is, is what, what are the never Trumpers up to, you know,
1: is. I have a cynical view of a lot of some of that is I feel like what I'm seeing, especially from the military establishment is, uh, the writing of, of cover your ass letters. Um, you know of the the ability to now distance yourself from uh, who a president that's becoming unpopular because well that's you, almost
0: that's almost yeah right that's almost Murkowski's, um tweet she said right? now say the things we've been thinking exactly
1: um, but those those
0: words might have consequences right they may I mean, you're you're right they may if uh, people are covering their ass up and down the chain of command you know um, it's an it indicator hard to cover your Ask if you're the one with a rifle in your hand and a protester in front of you and you're ordered to shoot, right? Especially in an era of social media. So who knows? Who knows uh, the the dialectic grinds on, you know? You might not be (laughs) interested in history, but history is interested in you. Yeah, it's going to happen to you
1: regardless. Um, All right, I got one more. It's one more question if you can, if you've got a little bit of time. Okay, so Something I've been struggling with, um and this is such a weird semantic uh fight that I think we have, and we've discussed in the ba- in the, like the background of the show, like trying to put together an episode about this. Um, do you consider Trump a fascist, and what what's the definition of a fascist, and is that even a worthwhile category to be talking about?
0: Uh, My wife just just asked from behind the wall, uh, that's a good question. So um, a member of my family uh, left Germany in 1939 when they were 10 years old. So it's very interesting to hear um, their reflections on this kind of stuff. Uh, And he's always had his antenna up. Um, So I think, yeah, once you get to the point of, you know, cordons of soldiers in front of the Lincoln Memorial in a kind of semiotic display of power. It's a, such, you know, the aesthetics of, 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 fascism are so important, right? We know yeah. that now, right? This, uh, you know, basically I don't really think there's much to gain by splitting hairs and saying it's not fascistic, right? Um, what's fascism when, when the principal or the people, you know, kind of seeking, the aspiring dictator is, is bad at it. Right. Uh, you know, who, who, you know, has no, um, has no saver or skill for tactics and strategy. Right. That's an interesting question. And that's what I kind of want to keep open, which is like, you know, uh, we have these categories of analysis that are useful, but we always have to be kind of interrogating them. So maybe, you know, 50 years from now we'll have a word for what's happening now and fifty years from now we'll be saying, Oh, is that thing happening now? Right. Um, but I mean I don't think there's any there's anything to be gained from flinching from the fact that um there is no part of the fascist book playbook that is not, as we speak, um being effectuated. Um and uh so that obviously, you know, because I'm a good liberal and, and kind of uh, uh activist intellectual, I this is the part of the interview where I say and whether it succeeds really is up to us. You know, it's up to our, our, our democratically elected officials who will respond to us. You know, what is going to happen? You know, Masha Gessen or Ann Applebaum has been talking about, um, you know, how the Senate now resembles, uh, Victor Orban's parliament. Yeah. The, the uh, the the collaborators that, yeah, not only collaborators, but, um, figureheads. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, um, you know, uh, and will it win? That's, that's kind of the, 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 the question that's up in the air.
1: I think it's important to remember with fascism. The, my, my kind of baseline is always that in the Umberto Echo essay. Um, and to remember that he says it's fuzzy, it changes. It doesn't always look the same way, but
0: it has certain features that are important. In America, it's going to come bearing a cross and a flag, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and, and then the thing of it is, um, uh, you know, the fascist takeover of Europe, you know, led to all sorts of um, progressive things in the end, right? Yeah. Um, And uh, we are inheritors of that progressive tradition. And the fact of the matter is, crisis can cause transformations that make the world a better place. So let's keep open that possibility, you know, now that we see, you know, cities, you know, kind of uh, shutting down police budgets and thinking about how they can, you know, sort of Uh, uh, renegotiate police contracts just to kind of take a small thing and uh, society begin to think of, wow, maybe next time there's a global pandemic, we should think about some sort of social insurance that lets people not have to, you know, starve to death. Right. So, you know, we'll see.
1: The crossroads is a dangerous place to be, but it's also exciting. It's full of possibilities, right? Some of them wonderful. If we can make it happen.
0: That's right. All right. That 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 can be the last word, I think.
1: Yeah, I think so. Normally we end the show on a really depressing note, uh, so it's actually kind of nice to have some hopeful stuff at the end. Uh, I think. Uh, so let me do this. Uh, Rick Perlstein, thank you so much for coming on the War College and walking us through this.
0: Thank you, Matthew. It was a, really a pleasure to talk with you this hour.
1: That's it this week, War College. Listeners, please...